We've been in a series called 7x7. Seven seven. It's a um, study of the seven churches of Revelation. 7x7 uh, seven seven is also another name for San Francisco, being seven miles by seven miles. Um, and what we've really wanted to do was to be prophetic in this series. Um, it's a little bit different than the series that we've done before in the past when we studied other books of the Bible or other teachings or topics. Um, this is prophetic in that we're, we're, tr- we're trying to let God speak directly into our church to shape it right now in the moment that we are in. And we're using these really heavy letters to the seven churches of Revelation that were in cities kind of like uh, San Francisco is, um, a church in a city. And it's very difficult to be a church in a city. And Jesus speaks directly into the church in the city. And we've allowed, we've tried to sit under it and let it prophetically speak to us. Let God speak to our church, to shape our church, to shape our hearts, um, to warn us, to encourage us, to uh, sometimes tell us to wake up and to repent. Um, so we've been doing that. So it's been bit, a, a little bit heavy, but it's, I think it's been good. It's been good for our church. So let me start by, by reading um, uh, the letter to the church in Sardis, what Jesus says to the church in Sardis. And then, um, and then I'll pray once more for our, our time in the scriptures. Um, chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let me pray. Lord, I ask that you would lead us um, in the scriptures today, that you give us ears to hear as the, the ending of that letter says. Give us ears to hear, and whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit wants to say to the reality of San Francisco this morning. We just humble ourselves under this word today. We assume no pride of place. Um, we assume no um, entitlement and we, we, we come before you and we're like, Lord, you are the creator of heaven and earth. Would you speak to us and lead us? We humble ourselves before your scriptures. Holy Spirit, lead us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Last week, um, there was a really big uh, conference in town. Salesforce had a conference, Dreamforce, that drew like 160,000 people um, to it. That had a big yacht or big old ship thing because they ran out of hotels on, on the Embarcadero. Um, During the conference, the CEO, the Salesforce CEO and philanthropist Mark Benioff, whose uh, hospital I see and his name's in big old lights on the hospital and from the neighborhood I live in in Petrero Hill, just walking the other day, just saw it and made me think of this, this, actually this story. He interviewed the CEO of Uber, uh, uh, Travis Kalanick. And so he interviewed him um, during this this conference. And Mark asked Travis a question that threw um, Travis for a bit of a loop. He was interviewing him. In the middle of the interview, he, Mark said to Travis, how do, you, how do we know that Uber has a heart? That's what he asked him. How do we know? Don't laugh. That's, for, that's serious. 
You must know something I don't. Um, how do we know Uber has a heart, he asked him. And uh, Travis, in kind of an uncharacteristic way, uh, froze. He was kind of caught off guard. Um, and they were right in the middle of the interview. And they were going, they were rambling. They were, they were just spitballing off each other and questions and answers. But this one took him for a loop. And then he, and he, and he paused. And then Travis repeated the question. He said, how do we know Uber has a heart? And then he got real nervous. And he like put his hand on his heart. And he goes, well, my own, own heart is beating right now. And then he paused again. And then he said, um, you know it when you see it. He said, we're a company that has tens of thousands of people, so there must be something. You know it when you see it. There were a company of tens of thousands of people, there must be something. And I thought this was interesting. I thought it was interesting um, that Mark Benioff would ask a question to this company. How do we know, or even ask, us to ask everyone this question, how do we know a company has a heart? The company you work for, how do you know it ha- this tech company or whatever company you work for has a soul, has life in it? And that was the question that Mark Benioff was asking Uber. And I would imagine he would probably ask almost every tech company the same question. And what's going on in the church in Sardis is Jesus asking a similar question. How do we know that Sardis has a heart? How do we know if a church has a heartbeat? How do we know that this church still has a pulse? What are the signs of life in a church? How do we know this church is truly and fully alive and alive to Christ? How do we know that? And it's a hard question. And we might want to respond in a similar way that the CEO of Uber did. Well, there are a lot of people coming to church. That must mean something. And I would have to say, I would confess to you that I would probably frame it around something like that. Like if you were to ask me, how do we know reality? I would be like, oh, well, look at how many people are coming on a Sunday morning. Look how many people gather in community groups throughout the week. I mean, something is going on. But it seems, it seems in this text that Jesus won't let us get away with that. He won't let us get away with, well, there's people that are there. It's a large church. The something's got to be there because he says, you can have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You can, you can have a name that says, oh, this church is very much alive and very much doing things in the city, but you're dead. And all these people can be coming and buzzing around and talking about you, but you're actually dead inside. We can actually be, we can be reputation SF and not reality SF. And that's not like, that's serious. It's not trying to be funny. We can really be reputation SF. Like, oh, that church has a reputation, but there's no real reality in that church anymore. They had a reality when they started, and that reality was Christ. But now they have a reputation, but that church is dead. People can talk about this church like they did in, of the church in Sardis, and it can have a reputation of being vibrant, but it's dead inside. That is a thing. That can happen. And this has been my fear since the second year of this church. See, this church didn't start with like a 10-year plan. We didn't move to San Francisco with a 10-year plan. This church didn't start with a PDF packet of a demographic study of the city and how the church will impact certain areas of the city and eventually the whole city. This church started with a small group of people who didn't really know what they were doing in a big city like San Francisco and who had no urban church planning experience at all. This church started with a group of people that started because they had no idea what they were doing, started walking the city and praying for days at a time. And that's how this church started, like prayer. Like this church started by people walking the streets of the city and praying and asking Christ, Jesus, what do you want for a church in San Francisco? Because we might have an idea, but what is your idea of the church in San Francisco? And the vision of this church came from a dependency on God to show us what kind of church he wanted us to be in this city, in this moment in history. And we heard collectively, that he wants us, this church, reality, to be a humble community in this city, of, of uh, a humble community of following Jesus in this city, 
obeying Jesus in the city, practicing the way of Jesus together in the city. And the one thing he told us especially was have a long view of this because it won't happen in a year or two years, five years, ten years. It'll happen over a generation. And we knew that we had no power to do this on our own. We had zero ability and power to do this on our own. So we needed God's spirit to empower us and to animate us and to fill our time together with his presence. We were dependent on him to do that. We believed, and we still do, that a moment in God's presence can answer a lifetime of questions. So we're like, we, we ask God that you would be near us, and then as you're near us, you would answer these lifetime of questions that people that come in the room have, just a moment in your presence, God. So we began as a small prayer meeting on Sunday nights in 2009 and moved to a Sunday morning gathering in 2010, January 10, 2010, when we started our first public gathering just a few blocks from here. And with zero advertising and a website that didn't really work then, people started showing up and showing up and showing up. And we had, then we had baptisms of people coming to follow Christ and know Jesus and we had engagements in the church and weddings and babies born and young families showing up and community groups happening. We started our kids and family ministry. We went from one to two to three to four worship gatherings on Sunday and then God spared us and allowed us to meet here <laughs> and partner with this beautiful school. People gave sacrificially of their time and of their money. We were able to hire our staff to better care for our church. No one was qualified in and of themselves to make all this happen, and no one, especially not me, saw all of this coming. I honestly thought it would take five years to break 100 people at this church, in this church. Five years. And then people started talking about us. This little church in San Francisco, people would write us and ask us for interviews on things, and we pretty much always deny them. People would come and visit the church because they had heard about us. And that's when I realized that our church was gaining a reputation. And at that point is when God warned the, us, the pastors of the church, and warned our church through this letter in Sardis. He warned us. It was January 8th, 2012. I gave a teaching on this verse of scripture, and I, we took it as a warning for our church, saying, yes, little, little church, little young church reality, you have a reputation, but be warned. You could live off a reputation and be dead inside. So I stood before this church and I read Revelation 3. And I said, this is God kindly warning our church. Revelation 3, I know your deeds. Jesus says it's a sardis and a warning to reality. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and hold it fast and repent. This was like a warning. This was like uh, uh, almost four years ago now. Like, like how, how do we know that we still have a pulse as a church? Guys, we could have a reputation of being alive, but we can die and then live off our reputation for years to come. And people just keep showing up because we do the same thing and we have the same service and we have the lights and we have the carpets and we have the thing or whatever. And then you read a Bible study and you're like, oh, but it feels alive. We can have a reputation of being alive, but we're dead. How do we know that we have a pulse as a church? It's been almost four years since God warned us of this. And how do we know we've not moved from reality SF to reputation SF? Well, first, let's talk about why Jesus rebuked this church in Sardis. Sardis was a very sophisticated city. Um, one histori historian notes that it was among the most opulent and decadent cities in the Roman Empire. Sardis was also the most tolerant city of the seven churches addressed in Revelation. 
Um, the church in Sardis was not under persecution or pressure like the other churches in Revelation were. This is key. Every church that we read so far in Revelation was under heavy persecution and heavy pressure in their city. But Sardis was tolerant. Sardis said, you know, come and meet, hang out. There was no threat of death from the outside. There was actually no, even, no threat of heresy from the inside. There was like truth being taught on the inside and there was no threat for, uh, of persecution on the outside. Sardis was comfortable, a comfortable church in a fairly decadent city, in a very comfortable city. The condemnation of the church in Sardis is that it had come to terms with its pagan environment. It lived in its environment and it had grown comfortable in its own city. It was once a, 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 a vibrant church, but it lost its way. It died on the inside, and it had grown comfortable in its city. There's no mention here of any persecution of the church in Sardis like the other churches, which means that Sardis tolerated Christianity, but the church also, also tolerated the, the, the culture of Sardis. So Sardis culturated, uh, tolerated the church, and the church tolerated Sardis. And as a result, the church had experienced favor and growth and comfort, and it caused them to fall asleep. They fell asleep. One commentator says it caused peace in the church in Sardis, but it was, a, it was the peace of the dead. Another commentator says um, the church was not troubled by persecution. It was not disturbed by heresy. It was not distressed by Jewish opposition. It was well known as an active, vigorous Christian congregation characterized by good works and charitable activities. But in the sight of God, all of these religious activities were a failure because they were only formal and external and not infused with the life-giving Holy Spirit. And then the next sentence I've had on my office wall from four years ago. Sardis was a church guided more by their, their city's culture than by Jesus' voice. Sardis was a church guided more by their city's culture than by Jesus' voice. Sardis looked more like their, the church in Sardis looked more like Sardis than it did like Jesus. And you may be here this morning, and that is exactly what's wrong with the church in your opinion. That it doesn't adapt to the times. That it doesn't fit in the culture it finds itself in. And you're like, that's the problem with the church. It doesn't adapt. It doesn't fit into the culture. It's archaic. It's old. It has this old beliefs and old ways of doing things. And it doesn't change. Consider this. Anne Lamont said this um, a while back. She said, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> now, in the same way, and I don't agree with a lot of Anne stuff, and she's great, and I've, yeah, so, um, but I don't agree with a lot of stuff, just, but in the same way, and I love that quote, if you find that Jesus, listen, if you find that Jesus doesn't challenge your view of sexuality, and your view of money, and your view of power, and your view of marriage, and your view of commercialism, and your view of violence, and the way you spend your time, and what you do with your body. If Jesus doesn't challenge all those areas for you, you can safely assume you've created Jesus in your own image. You've created a Jesus you like. Jesus challenges every culture and every subculture. Jesus would challenge conservatives to be more liberal with their money and towards social justice. Jesus would challenge the liberals to be more conservative with their sex and their bodies. Or the liberals, sorry, with more sex in their, in their bodies. The church would be a place, uh, should be the place of all places in the city 
where you walk into it and it's guided by Jesus' voice and his teachings and his leadings and not by the city's culture, that's, if any place in the city should be a respite from the, the, the waves of culture, it should be the church. Sardis had become a really successful organization that had, a great, had great momentum, perceived life and a reputation, but it was dead inside. Dead spiritually, it was dead uh, to the voice of Jesus, it was dead to the real work of having, um, uh, loving your neighbor, it was dead to the real work of holiness. It says that there, there are people in there who, who uh, soiled their garments, or actually uh, the text, Jesus says there's people that have not soiled their garments, meaning there are people that most of the people in church had soiled their garments, meaning they walked in an impurity, they, they, and they brought that impure life into the church. He, Jesus says, I know your works, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead, which is the, the har- one of the harshest rebukes of any church in Revelation. And this is a warning. How do we know we have a pulse? How do we know we're not just like weekend at Bernie's? Like, do you remember, please say that you know that movie. 1989, classic. Weekend at Bernie's, two friends go to vacation at their boss's home, but they find that he's dead, but they don't want to wreck their weekend. So they drag him his dead body around, acting like he's alive. And they get into all kinds of shenanigans. You've never seen that movie? It's, it's amazing. I wouldn't say amazing. It's a good movie. How do we know we're not weakened in Bernie's? How do we know that we're not dead and then it's our reputation that's, being moving, that's moving us around as a church? How do we know? Verse 2 again. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. The first question that I think this text raises for our church is, are you becoming lethargic about the radical demands of following Christ in the midst of San Francisco culture? This is the first thing that I think that this text would, would, would ask of us, or the, the question that this text raises. Are you becoming lethargic about the radical demands of following Christ in the midst of San Francisco culture? Are you just becoming lazy and you're falling asleep when it becomes to like the, 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 the demands of follow, the radical demands of following Jesus, of laying your life down for Christ? Are you becoming lethargic? And I would say this in three ways, in justice and holiness and in witness. Are you becoming lazy in justice? Are you caring and serving and praying for the poor and the voiceless souls in our city like the gentleman was speaking of before the, the, the service started? Does it break your heart when you see it and does it move you to spirit-led action? Is there justice happening in your, in your soul and is it making its way through your life? And holiness. Are you becoming lethargic in your holiness? The, the God of this age, this is just the truth. The God of this age is sex. It just is. It began here in the 60s with the sexual revolution and continues to have power and potency in our world today through this city. If you study the early church, you will find that they were, they, they were radically countercultural when it came to sexuality. Radically countercultural. Sexual purity was one of the apologetics of the gospel in the early church. Church, I fear... And I, and I don't say this to condemn us because there's so much freedom and forgiveness in Christ. But church, I fear that we will silently accommodate ourselves to the sexual mores of our city. That we'll just like fit right into it and go, oh yeah, that's just, hey, everyone. It's just what, that's just what everyone, this is how everyone thinks here. Just what it is. And I, I feel the temptation of the seduction of this city all the time personally. I mean, not just sexually, but the, the blind lust for pleasure in all of its forms in this city. 
I feel it pulling at my soul all the time. And, and it's, it's like a pleasure that doesn't really satisfy, that you go after, but you're still hungry, and you go after, but you're still hungry. But the holiness of God is really the wholeness of humanity. The holiness of God is really our wholeness. And have I forgot that? Have you forgot that? That the holiness of God is the wholeness of humanity. It's how we're put back together, how we're integrated, how our soul is integrated with our life. Have you forgot the demands of Christ to take up your cross and to follow him? That that is the picture of self-sacrifice. That is the picture of being a follower of Jesus. Anyone, Jesus says, who would come after me must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. That is, that is like the entry point. That is not radical, necessarily radical Christianity. That's like entry point. That's how you get in. But a lot of us need um, maybe a more romantic way of thinking about it. C.S. Lewis, at the end of Mere Christianity, um, I, try to, I try to read this as often as I can in this church because it's one of my favorite quotes of all time. He says, this is how he ends the book. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death Death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him And with him, everything else thrown in. Have we forgot, church, holiness? But have we also forgot witness? Is Jesus and the Spirit of God the only answer to our church's existence and our very lives as witness to Christ's life, death, and resurrection? Like, are, are we like walking, living, breathing proof that Christ is alive? That, that we testify that we were sinners, that no one is righteous. No one, I'm not at all. That no one is righteous, only Christ is. And that no one is sinless, only Christ is. No, we're sinners. And we've been redeemed by Jesus and by his mercy and his grace. Have we forgot that? Who have been offered forgiveness and life by Christ and are so humbled by that reality. We're so humbled by the fact that Christ would save us that it would cause us to be humble. It would cause us to be humble witnesses to the good of Christ and, to the, and how good Jesus is. Are we witnessing to that fact? Like, it's, it's in Christ that I live and move and have my being. I live, I actually live my life poured out for Jesus because he saved me, because he loved me, and he's worth it. Christ is worth it. Have we forgot those things? Are we in justice and holiness and witness? Living a life that is not growing lethargic, that's not falling asleep. I think we can fall under the trap of, of talking more about our church than Jesus. And I know this to be true in my own life. I can talk more about reality than Jesus, and God, help me. Help our church. Not, I, don't want our, I don't want reality to have a reputation in the city. I promise you I don't. I want Jesus to have a reputation in the city. And, 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 and I, I feel like, I feel like it's, it's hard. It's that's a hard thing to do because we can kind of tangibly connect everything to church, to this church or a church. And I just don't want that. Um, I really honestly want the name, like, whatever Jesus does in our generation in this city 
and after we're all long gone and if Christ has not come back to make all things new. Um, I want it to be said, like, during this period of our life that we lived in San Francisco, like, Jesus did something. And then we're, like, just maybe a footnote, but we don't have to be. But it was Christ that was doing something. It was Christ that was saving. It was Christ that was calling. May Jesus be the one with a reputation in San Francisco and not any church. The second question that this raises is the last part of verse 2. I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. And this, is, this one is, gosh, this, one's, this one is convicting for me. Are you finishing what you started? Okay, the, the first one, I mean, as a, pa- as a pastor, I can like, yeah, like my job is most of those. So, yeah, okay. Um, but this one right here really, really, uh, really convicts me. And it might convict you too. Are you finishing what you started? And the reason why this is convicting for me is because I love starting new things. I, I confess to you, I love new things. And it's a discipline for me to finish them. I will typically start out a sermon series really strong and then give away the last two sermons. Because I want to move on to the next sermon series. I'm like, I love the starting it. And then I'm like, halfway through, I'm like, I'm, I'm over. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on to the next study thing I'm doing. And I do this with, ask my wife. I just, lo- I love new things. I remember this line from Mad Men after Don and Betty divorced and Don had a new love interest and was telling Betty about it. And Betty said, between her drags of her cigarette, she said, Don, does she know that you like the beginning of things? I, I, and I remember watching that. Ooh, that was, that hurt, that hurt me. That was, <laughs> and it's, because it's true. You watch Don's life, you're like, I never want to be that. I, it's he, anti-hero. But then there's parts of it, like, kind of in a serious way, Michael Scott was in a funny way. Like, you see yourself in him, you're like, no, no, I don't want, I don't want to see myself in him. That one was, was convicting for me. Like, does, does that person know? that you like the beginning of things. Sardis was a church that liked the beginning of things. It started well. We know that because they are told to strengthen what remains. They, the problem was they weren't finishing well. Church, th- this church, started well. I'm very proud to say. But it's yet to be seen if we will finish well. Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And it's not really how you start the race. It's how you finish the race. Let me ask you, are there things left undone in your life? Are you finishing what you started? Are, are, are there, were, there, were there ways? Are there ways? Was there ways? You were serving Christ sacrificially, and now you've just settled into the idea that someone else will do it. Whether it's at this church or in your job or someone just got lazier. Like, yeah, I, I went to serve. I was serving Christ a few years ago, but now it's just like someone else do it. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit too busy. Was there someone that God told you to minister to and to help and you began to, but then you got too distracted or you liked the beginning of it and now it was too hard. The, the work of love and to keep loving them, to keep ministering to them was too hard and you fell off. Was there a moment when God called you to give a certain amount of money and you just haven't done it? Was there something or someone that God told you to pray for and you have not done that? You're like, oh, I'll pray for that. And you, know, you didn't. And you even wrote it down, but you never went through with it. You've never been diligent in praying for that thing. Is there something that God has called you to give up, like completely give up, but you keep enough of it in your life to bring you comfort when you need it? If we have a whole church like this, guys, it won't be long until we're all dead. If, a whole, if we have a whole church like this, this is a call for all of us to wake up and finish what we started. Jesus uses the words uh, that he uses to most churches here. He says, repent. Um, it means to turn. Another way to think about it, because I know, I know that that can be um, a hard 
uh, word to understand, like repent. And it can have negative connotation. It doesn't. It's a beautiful word. Um, but if you need another analogy, another way to think about it, think about it like this. Use, think about the words um, get up. Get up. If you've fallen, get up. If you've sat down in your race, get up. If you've stumbled, get up and keep moving towards Christ. There's something that um, I don't think I've, I've read to, um, here before. It's a, it's a poem. It's, it's, it's kind of long. I'm going to read it to you. It's a bit, um, a bit corny and sentimental, but I don't care. I'm going to read it to you anyway. Um, and, I, and I read it as a young Christian, and I, I read it a couple times a year. Sometimes I get through, through it without crying. Other times I don't. But, um, but it's, it's kind of marked mark my life. So I'm going to just read it to you. I saw it on the screen, so just listen. It's called The Race. Quit, give up, you're beaten. They shout and plead. There's just too much against you now. This time you can't succeed. As I start to hang my head in front of failure's face, my downward fall is broken by the memory of a race. And hope fills my weakened will as I recall that scene. For just the thought of that short race rejuvenates my being. A children's race, young boys, young men, how I remember it well. Excitement, sure, but also fear. It wasn't hard to tell. They all lined up so full of hope. Each one thought to win the race. Or tie for first, if not that, at least second place. The fathers watched from the, off the side, each cheering for his son. Each boy hoped to show his dad that he would be the one. The whistle blew and off they went, young hearts and hopes of fire. To win and be the hero was each young boy's desire. And one young boy in particular, whose dad was in the crowd, was running uh, near the lead and thought, my dad would be so proud. But as they sped down the field across the shallow dip, the little boy who thought to win lost his step and slipped. Trying hard to catch himself, his hands flew out to brace. Amid the laughter of the crowd, he fell flat on his face. So he fell down, and with him hope, he couldn't win it now. Embarrassed and sad, he only wished to disappear somehow. But as he fell, his dad stood up and showed his anxious face, which to the boy so clearly said, get up and win the race. So quickly, he quickly rose, no damage done, a bit, of, a bit behind, that's all. He ran with all his mind and might to make up for his fall. So anxious to restore himself to catch up and win, his mind went faster than his legs. He slipped and fell again. He wished then to quit before with only one disgrace. I'm hopeless as a runner now. I shouldn't try to race. But in the laughing crowd, he searched and found his father's face, that steady look which said again, get up and win the race. So he jumped up to try again, 10 yards behind the last. If I'm going to gain those yards, he thought, I got to move real fast. Exerting everything he had to gain eight or 10, but trying hard to catch the lead, he slipped and fell again. Defeat, he laid there silently, a tear dropped from his eye. There's no sense in running anymore. Three strikes, I'm out, why try? No, the will to raise, will to rise had disappeared. All hope had fled away. So far behind, so error prone, a loser all the way. I've lost, so what's the use, he thought. I'll live with my disgrace. But then he thought about his dad, who soon he'd have to face. Get up, an echo sounded low. Get up and take your place. You were not meant for failure, for failure here. Get up and win the race. With borrowed will, get up, he, it said. You haven't lost at all, for winning is no more than this, to rise each time you fall. So up he rose to run once more, and with the new commit, he resolved to win or lose. At least he wouldn't quit. So far behind the others now, the most he'd ever been. Still he gave it all he had and ran as though to win. 
Through times he'd fallen, stumbling, through times he rose again, so far behind to hope to win, he still ran to the end. They cheered the winning runner as he crossed the finish line, head high and proud and happy, no failing, no disgrace. But when the fallen youngster crossed the line last place, the crowd gave him a greater cheer for finishing the race. And even though he came in last with head bowed low and proud, you would have to thought he won the race to listen to that crowd. And to his dad, he sadly said, I didn't do so well. To me, you won, his father said. You rose each time you fell. And now when things seem dark and hard and difficult to face, the memory of that little boy helps me in my own race. For all of life is like that race with ups and downs and all, and all you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. Quit, give up, you're beaten, they shout in my face. But another voice within me says, get up and win your race. Church, finish what you started. You're almost six years in, and you have a lifetime to go. And I have a lifetime to go. I pray for this church that we would finish well, that we would be people who practice repentance, practice getting up when we fall. And as we do, that we would, our, the reputation of the church would be Christ and Christ's forgiveness and Christ's hope and Christ's beauty in this church. Let's pray.